Sometimes as a podcast host, you get the opportunity to get the answers to questions that you've been wondering about for years. All right. Now, I know we're supposed to talk about serious things on this, but the question I've been dying to ask, how in God's name did you get the idea to put underwear in the ground? (laughs) The Soil Your Undies project came to light by my former 4-H leader, of all things. I I jokingly refer to her as my old 4-H leader. Um... But a lady by the name of Amber Holland, who recently retired, and one day calls me up and, and uh, she said, I'd like you to participate in this cotton test. And so she didn't have the courage to come herself. She sends her summer student out in her um, trunk as she opens up the trunk is this package of men's underwear that she's going to proceed to bury in my soil. And so as a, as a farmer, as a male person, I'm just saying, okay, don't say anything that's not appropriate, that can, be taken, that can be taken the wrong way, right? So I'm just sort of trying to keep my comments to myself. So Claire and I proceed to bury this pair of men's underwear in the, in the field. And I asked Claire, um, who now has her PhD as well, and living in Pennsylvania, I believe, I said, do you have a spare pair? And she said, yeah, I do. And so we actually proceeded across the road where there was another cornfield growing at the time. We buried my pair in my cornfield with cover crops and went across the road into the neighbor's field trespassing and buried it into his cornfield with really intensive tillage, no cover crops. We came back six weeks later and I, I had the, uh, the foresight, I guess, to sort of film it uh, while, while we're digging this up. And I narrated it at the same time and I put it on YouTube and we compared, you know, the no-till cover crops. And you could see the one pair was very degraded coming out of my my long-term no-till cover crop field. And the other pair, the other pair was uh, like basically wash and wear. And so what it did was this whole Sawyer Undies thing, it just came to light straight away the visual impact that there is soil life, right? So the... the microbiology that lives in the soil was consuming that cotton which is cellulose and turning it into plant available nutrients soil is there anything it can't do rural roots to climate solutions in partnership with regeneration canada presents stories of regeneration a podcast series exploring why we, as a society, need to get behind the farmers and ranchers who are regenerating the land, ecosystems, and local economies through their agricultural practices and principles. Farmers and ranchers who are doing great things through regenerative agriculture. Part 3, Maximizing Soil Function with Blake Vince of Blockhair Farms in Merlin, Ontario, August 22nd, 2023. Soil is very much alive and hungry too, which I can totally relate to because I suffer from what I believe is called a fear of getting hungry or faga. Some estimates go as far as saying that there is more life in a teaspoon of healthy soil than there are people on the planet. You just need a microscope to see most of it. Or you could do what grain farmer Blake Vince did and bury a pair of tidy whities in the soil to produce that proof of the existence of this vast and diverse soil microbial community. Slight aside here, you really should do an internet search for Soil Your Undies after listening to this episode. It kind of went viral in its time. 
in the soil, you've got critters that you've heard of before, like earthworms, bacteria, and fungi. And other critters you may have never heard of before, like protozoa and nematodes, who have this tendency of eating the bacteria and the fungi. A protozoa's got to do what a protozoa's got to do. In this bustling environment where a lot of things are eating each other, there is an exchange between soil organisms and plants so both sides of the equation get what they need to survive and thrive, and they produce food for the rest of us living above ground. This interaction between the soil and plants is something that fascinated Blake Vince, who farms mainly soy and corn in southwestern Ontario. It fascinated him at a very young age. So my name is Blake Vince, and I live in southwestern Ontario, just north of a little village called Merlin. So I think I've been groomed to be a farmer, uh, truthfully, like most farm kids. Um, back in the day when I was born, we were still milking a few cows here on our farm. Uh, the dairy cows left in 74. I was born in 1972 and I had a playpen in the barn. You know, mom and dad were milking cows. And so the sounds and the smells of livestock uh, were fully entrenched in my, in my early years. And like most farm kids, you know, I uh, grew up playing with uh, farm toys um, with the exception of being down the road playing with the neighbor girl and we'd play Barbies, right, at her place. So, uh, you know, that that was sort of how I was raised, is raised like most farm kids, uh, you know, playing out in, out in the yard um, uh, at a little few, few years after that, turning our sandbox that my brother-in-law, brother and I played in, rather, into a little vegetable garden. And uh, so that was my foray into growing crops and so that's that's a little bit of who i am and what's what's cursing through my veins awesome do you get a bumper crop from that uh, sandbox garden the sandbox garden made farming look pretty simple right (laughs) and uh yeah it was it was uh it was sort of what sort of propelled me to be enamored by plants and seeds and i can remember those early days my my mother had this um, wicker basket in in the vet in the canning cupboard downstairs in the basement and the in the wicker basket was this glass mason jar full of seeds. And I remember looking at the seeds, the shapes, the colors, and uh, just letting them run through your fingers. And I was always fascinated by those seeds. And then once you place them in the soil and what they became, right, I was just uh, fascinated by that. And I still am to this day, you know, the miracle of growth and watching that that crop come to life and, mm. um, and then taking it through to finish. Okay. Was there ever a moment in your life you considered not being a farmer? I'm sure in the recent past there's been a few moments, but I'm more wondering, you know, a lot of kids that grew up in small towns like myself, you can't get out of there faster when you turn 18, you know? Yeah. um, So the only time I really contemplated not being a farmer, truthfully, was, uh, you know, in those early days, um, watching Sesame Street. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I was... um, watching television I guess my mother t- likes to tell the story and I came running into the kitchen and I said mom mom I know what I want to be when I'm old and she says oh what's that I want to be a ditch digger the rest of that story goes that Blake's mom's shoulders I kind of slumped at that point when he said that he wanted to be a ditch digger and she encouraged her very young son to set his sights a little bit higher not that there's anything wrong with being a ditch digger but you could understand for a kid like Blake who was just so fascinated with the soil you know, ditch digging, that would make a lot of sense. Fortunately for Blake's family, that fascination turned into a minor obsession with maximizing soil function, despite all the odds. Blake is also a fifth generation farmer, probably one of the few ones in the series. I think the only other ones might be Rebecca of Famterre Patage in New Brunswick and Rachel of Lightfoot and Wolfville in Nova Scotia, 
who you're going to hear from in the next few episodes. Okay, let's get a better idea of the context Blake is farming in. I know we're barely a third of the way through the Stories of Regeneration series, but it's probably becoming clear to those of you who listened to part one with Manitoba agriculture producer Ryan Boyd, and part two with Saskatchewan agriculture producers Tannis and Derek Axton, probably becoming pretty clear that understanding the context you're farming or ranching in is an extremely important principle when it comes to regenerative agriculture. No, uh, so where we are in southwestern Ontario here, the topography is very, very flat. This is old, specifically on our farm, this is old glacial lake bottom soil. And we're technically at lake level here. And so our soil type is Brookston clay. So as the clay particles would have flocculated and settled out of that water column, and they would have come to rest on that lake bed floor, essentially, uh, that's why we have such a heavy clay content. And so when I talk about clay soil, so our, our surface uh, soil is, is classified as Brookston clay. It's about two to four inches of topsoil. And then below that, we have a heavier clay layer and the, what they call the B horizon. And then the C horizon goes down even to be a heavier percentage clay. And that goes to about 80 feet of depth. And then you'll get to your shale rock where a lot of water wells are drilled to to that level. So we have a we have a huge reserve of nutrients. It's just trying to figure out how to tap into that res- you know, that big reservoir of nutrients with, with roots, obviously. I hate asking producers this question because it's been a bit of a crap growing season, but um, yeah, what have been some of the challenges this year? So our biggest challenge right now to date is we started off very, very hot and dry post-planting and almost, I would say, close to setting records for how dry we were in June. And now I say that sheepishly because I know there's a lot of guys that have been suffering a a really significant drought through the Midwest. And then we had a reversal of fate and the start of July, the tap started to turn on and we've gone in the opposite direction where we've been really excessively wet through uh, July and August by comparison. But the bigger story, I think, that is yet to unfold is we're approximately, as we sit here today towards the tail end of August, we're almost about two weeks behind on solar radiation. Lack, you know, and, and that's because of the forest fires from Western Canada and Quebec. And so there were days back in uh, May and in June where it'd be 10 o'clock in the morning and you could look directly at the sun without hurting your eyes. That's how thick it was. And so as a farmer, you can't anticipate Nobody's going to anticipate, well, we're going to have a forest fire. And, and, uh, but what I'm, what I'm afraid of now is the F word. Mm. And in Canada, that's frost. Mm. And so typically our first frost, our first killing frost doesn't come till about the 1st of October. Mm-hmm. And I hope, that, I hope it comes much later than that this year because we're going to need every bit of daylight to get this crop to finish right now. Okay. Is that like more a problem for your corn than your but, soy? Or yeah, I would say, I would say both actually. Yeah. Um, like I, I tend to grow full season um, hybrids for corn. So okay. corn is definitely a risk, right? But also I'm, I'm not one to really shorten up day length on soybeans either. Mm. And so the bigger thing will be pod fill. So we want to have, have as much sunlight as we can going into uh, September because we want to fill those beans out and especially those, those last flowers and fill those pods too. Okay, uh, fingers crossed. Then. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
When Blake says his land is very flat, he isn't kidding. I live out in the prairies, and the prairies are pretty flat. But Blake's place, the land out there, it seemed even flatter somehow. It was also cool and inspiring to see how much renewable energy they have out in that part of Ontario. Everything from solar panels to wind turbines. So the roots of the crops can tap into all those nutrients and just function properly. Blake and other agriculture producers in his area use something called tile drainage. Something I'd heard of before, but hadn't seen in real life until I visited Blake's place. Tile drainage 101. Okay, so tile drainage in our topography here, like I said, being so flat, when the rain falls on the landscape, we have heavy clay soil, like I said, any nuance of a depression, water finds its level and goes to those lower areas of the field, and then it sort of will drown out the crop. So tile drainage, tile, not like the tile that we find on our bathroom floor or kitchen floor, is like a four-inch diameter pipe. Originally, it was made out of clay. So it would, the clay would have been, you know, dug out, turned into like a slurry, gone through a forming device, and then baked in a kiln. Mm. Much like you'd see like terracotta roofs in California or, or you know, in, this, in Mexico. So these clay tiles are 12 inch in length approximately, and they would be laid end for end on a horizontal plane, horizontal level, approximately in our geography we're only about 24 inches of cover because if we bury them deeper than that then it just silts off and the water doesn't get into the tile Mm -hmm. okay now other geographies they they can because of their soil type can bury them a lot deeper the the tiling process actually started one of the areas that it started and and took a lot of a bigger role was in was in new york state by a man named johnson And so here, because like I said earlier in the conversation, we're at lake level, it is sort of um, mitigating the impact of the water table. And it allows the water to come off the top, but also that subsurface water drains away as well so that our roots of our crops that we're growing are not sitting in a saturated pool. Mm -hmm. So not only does it drain drain the water, but it provides aeration. So initially, when we had a lot more soil organic matter, when the land was first cut, cleared, and it was Carolinian hardwood forest, with as much diversity as you'd find in a Brazilian rainforest, and now it's all cropland, so the, 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 stu- the trees are removed, the stumps are removed, the soil organic matter was through the roof, uh, we didn't have heavy compaction, you just had um, horse-drawn implements. The tile originally was spaced between 100 feet and 66 feet in that range, just you know, when you look back to old tile um, drains that are still there in existence and still some of them, if maintained properly, are still working effectively. Wow. Now, today we've gone away from that clay tile and we're installing plastic tile that comes on like a 2,500 foot roll. So there's less physical uh, manpower required and this, it works exactly the same, although it's made out of plastic. Mm-hmm. And so the tile drains the water into the adjacent ditch ultimately going into the river, and then eventually ending up in the lake. That's Tile Drainage 101. Would you look at that? Blake did get into the ditch digging business in a way. And by the way, based on what I saw when I was at Blake's place, the biodiversity in those ditches is just exploding. It was pretty cool to see in quite the contrast to, you know, see these very thick, 
lush and diverse vegetation just slicing through fields of corn and soy. Tile drainage really helps to make growing a crop possible in that part of Ontario, but there are downsides to tile drainage. And sadly today we're tiling fields now. Uh, there's fields in our area that are tiled at one, the old timers would refer to it as one rod tiling, which is 16 and a half feet apart from each other. Okay. Okay. And, wow. and so that, again, that's about um, maximizing on water drainage mm -hmm. as well as aeration. Mm -hmm. But when we, have, when we have soils that function, when we leave them alone, and we don't do tillage and we don't disrupt the pore space. We don't need to place tile as close together. But if we're in a conventional mindset and we're using exclusively the methodology of which everybody else advocates for, which is heavy tillage, heavy use of fertilizer, the soils become consolidated, they collapse, we remove the porosity, they don't infiltrate, they're not functioning. So tile becomes, for those people, even more critical. And we're losing soil organic matter, mm -hmm. right? That's the more critical part. Nutrients washing away like that isn't great for your soils since we need to feed that hungry, microscopic biological community in the soil that I mentioned a bit earlier. Blake isn't too far away from Lake Erie. And poor Lake Erie is in this constant battle with blue-green algae blooms. Overloading the lake with nutrients is one of the main causes of those blooms. And those blooms can kill fish and really mess with the source drinking water for the people living nearby. So not good for the farm, not good for the climate. Okay, okay. In this case, it's not the climate technically. We're talking about the environment. But you saw where it's going with that. One of the ways Blake goes about trying to mitigate all this is through minimizing soil disturbance which is one of the 10 regenerative agriculture principles we are covering in Stories of Regeneration. I know when most of us think of agriculture, we almost immediately think about plows being pulled by horses or tractors, but plowing and turning over soil disrupts critical functions of that vast soil microbial community that's interacting with plants. That community and those interactions play a significant role in making soils healthy, living ecosystems. Regenerative agriculture practices like no-till, minimum or low-till, and using perennial plants disrupt the soil as little as possible. Reducing tillage can minimize soil erosion, decrease the demand for chemical inputs, and foster more resilient agriculture systems. And Blake's family has a fairly long history of no-till. So no-till is sort of, we tied in from the previous sort of comment, uh, no-till is the use of no-tillage. So not we're not using the traditional moldboard plow that grandpa used that's familiar, that iconic symbol of agriculture, right? So we're reducing the use of what they refer to as primary tillage and the implement that we use, the planter or the air seeder, is equipped to allow us with no disturbance to just drop the seed in the ground, leaving a minimal slit, just momentarily opening up a small slice of soil mm. and then immediately closing it behind. The seed is dropped in there and there's no, there's no tillage done whatsoever. Mm. The beauty of that is obviously with no till, we have 
minimal, minimal depreciation mm -hmm. by comparison. We have less fuel consumed, mm -hmm. less tractor hours mm -hmm. used, less diesel fuel, right? Mm -hmm. uh, less time, less manpower. All of these things add up to multiples. And when it comes down to that almighty target that everybody strives for, and that comes down to yield. Mm. And over time, our yields are on par with those in a conventional system. So this old adage, I've heard it time and time again since we started, no till, no yield. Okay. I've okay. heard that one oh, before. Yeah. No till, no yield. And in Ontario, we're spoiled. We have predictable rain events. Why no-till has taken off and gone like gangbusters across the prairie is the prairie is more arid environment. Mm. So they work tirelessly to conserve moisture. That's their whole focus of why no-till is the methodology that's used over there. Mm. In southwestern Ontario, we have been spoiled. We continue to be spoiled because of our proximity to the Great Lakes and the prevailing wind currents that come across the prairies and then gain momentum. They sweep across, they pick up moisture from Lake Michigan and then Lake Huron, and then they deposit here in southwestern Ontario. And like, I know when your dad and your uncles made the decision, you're about 10 years old. So yeah, 11, didn't, yeah. Yeah, they're going yeah. in and bring you in on the decision. No, uh, but I can tell you the story. Uh, so you gotta think back, we're here in 1983 when we started no-till on our farm. My dad and my two uncles were farming together. My grandfather, he was long since passed away. He passed away in 1974. And they didn't have a financial backstop. And why that's so critical is they had some soybeans in storage that year. High interest rates, low commodity prices. And the uh, elevator where they had the beans stored was a, was a cooperative. And uh, it went bankrupt. And so the creditor of the co-op decided in his infinite wisdom to seize those soybeans in storage as assets of the co-op. <laughs> so they had to figure out in straight order, well, how are we going to go to the field with that money that they had had there, you know, thinking, okay, that was for fertilizer, that was for chemical, that was for fuel, that was for any other miscellaneous expenditures, mm. right? And so right away, they looked at each other, I think. They probably took a great big collective sigh and dug deep and said, okay, well, we can sell this piece of machinery. Mm. We can sell this tractor, you know, we can re start to reduce this uh, over here, sort of cut costs, right? And so that's their foray into no-till wasn't really, you know, and they would never articulate it as such. But as I've sat back and I've, I've dug deeper into the history of why it is that we've done things, it was a life event that sort of coincided and it sort of forced their hands into saying, we need to do something different and we need to figure it out straight away. Hmm. And that's the thing like with the say like necessity being the mother of invention. Yeah, right, right. Clearly made a choice when you took over that you're going to keep doing no-till. So yeah. why did you decide to continue with it? Well, obviously, uh, when I came home from university in the 90s, I didn't have to explain to my dad and my uncles this thing called no-till because we were already doing it. Uh, sadly, though, at the time, the quote-unquote experts were, were talking about, oh, the specific placement of fertilizer and how critical that was to corn growth and development. And uh, strip-till was all the rage. And I fell off the wagon and we ended up going down the path of strip tillage until one day, um, and it was in the early, it was in the early 2000s that we bought this strip till machine. And so we could go down this path of specific fertilizer placement and try and strive for higher yields. 
And I was in Ohio at a field day, and I was supporting the machine because they had a clo- it was the closest field day in proximity where we live. And I was one of the beta test users of this machine that came in from Minnesota at the time. And, and while I was there, off in the side of the, of the site in a soil pit was my good friend, David Brandt. And David Brandt looked at me, and, and he said, I, let me tell you something, son. I said, what's that, Mr. Brandt? I said, I can do way more with, with roots than you can with that machine right there. And so anyways, uh, that was sort of my sort of, you know, slap in the face. And I'd heard this story before from my uncle, who was at a field day when he was a young man. And there was a tillage demonstration. And of course, you know, they had the latest and greatest tractor there. It was actually a Caterpillar tractor on steel tracks. And they were pulling this ripper through the field or whatever. And this older gentleman from our neighborhood says to my uncle at the time, um, my dad's older brother who farms in the next county over, he said, I, Henry, I want to tell you something. I can do way more with alfalfa roots than you can with that machine right there. Hmm. And I'd heard this story my entire life. And so when David Brandt echoed a similar word to me, it was like deja vu. Hmm. So David and I had become good friends and, and we, ch- we had challenged each other uh, along this sort of foray. And when I first met David, he was... Um, you know, already long, long down the path of no-tilling started way before we even did, like in the 70s. And uh, his go-to at the time when I met David was using radish, tillage radish, and peas, alternating rows. Okay. And so as the, as the radish would die over the winter, it would leave these, these holes, essentially, uh, like a deep ripper. Mm. And then the subsequent year, he would plant his crop sort of just offset from those radish holes. And so that's how we met each other. And then him and I were introduced to this concept of uh, planting these big diverse blends and we sort of would, you know, banter back and forth and talk about different strategies about what was working. And I remember David had a field day the first year and he planted this great big cover crop, really ultra early just for effect. And I remember going to the field day and here David had this cover crop and it was way over the hood of the tractor. (laughs) And he had a front wheel assist tractor and it was a big orange Alice Chalmers type tractor. Uh, ag co-tractor and um and i'm looking at that cover crop and it's like it's well over my head like it's 10 feet plus tall right that's awesome and i'm thinking if this american if he can do this down here this canadian living five hours north why the hell can't somebody do this up here and so david and i had had become steadfast friends ever since that time we first met on his farm in the soil pit or that wasn't really on his farm it was another off farm at another at Van Wert, Ohio is the place. And tragically, this spring, uh, David died in an automobile accident. But uh, nonetheless, um, I'll be forever grateful to um, to the man for changing my outlook, right? And what he did for me and, and how I look at things differently. And, you know, that's just sort of part of my story. Strip tillage is when you till strips in a field about 6 to 12 inches wide and plant into those strips, but you leave the rows in between undisturbed. So kind of like a compromise between no tillage and full tillage. David Brandt was an Ohio agriculture producer and a huge advocate for soil health and no-till practices. A meme of David Brandt really took off back in 2018. And for the record, I hate that saying that necessity is a mother of invention. I don't deny the truth behind the statement. It just always seems to imply, at least in my mind, that we waited way too long and until we had no other options. If you remember from part two with the Axtons, and you know what, in a way in part one with Ryan Boyd, things weren't looking great for their farms when they began their regenerative journey. 
However, they were trying to avoid being forced to change either by economics or ecology or both. They were trying to avoid being forced to change because things had gotten so bad that they had to change. So if I had the pen, if I had a chance to redo that saying, what I would like or what I would prefer is something like this. Recognizing that there are better ways to do things is the mother, father, badass auntie, or goofy uncle of invention. The big thing for me, the the advantage with no-till, aside from all those other factors that you see, is the direct impact that no-till has on the ecosystem that we collectively share, specifically water. Right away, you start to see things improve. The visual things that we start to see improve are like the proliferation of earthworms. When you walk out in the field that we have, it's not hard to see all of the earthworm activity because you see all of these middens out there. Some people would refer to them these little haystacks in between your rows of annual crops. So it's the previous crops residue that the earthworms have brought together and they look like little haystacks out there in between protecting these vertical channels that the earthworm has created. So that allows for increased porosity again. It allows for increased water infiltration, water holding capacity. You know, people get enamored. I always say people get enamored with that earthworm as it pertains to soil health because it's something that they can visualize. So water becomes a big thing that I'm very passionate about because water, we're in close proximity, as I said, to the Great Lakes, specifically Lake Erie. And why that's even more critical to us is because our water comes from Lake Erie via a municipal water line that feeds our house for my wife, my kids, and myself. And so on an ongoing basis, sadly, it seems like we're fighting these blue-green algae masses. And those things, those blue-green algae masses have been linked with science. And the farmer always screams, where's the science? But with science, those blue-green algae masses have been linked with neurological diseases. And in our geography, tragically, so the neurological diseases being MS, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, ALS. And in our geography here, we have a very high occurrence of those diseases within society. You know, and I'm not trying to be the doomsday sayer here, but I think as farmers and as farming, our impact that we're having on this resource that we all collectively share, we need to do better. But sadly, and I talked about this a bit yesterday, the farmer can do all the heavy lifting. We can do all these great, great things for uh, the environment. But tragically, on an annual basis, there are sewage bypass events that happen around the lake, not only here in Canada and in cities like Toronto. I have said this on this podcast on more than one occasion, but we're asking a lot from farmers and ranchers these days. We aren't asking just for food, fiber, and medicine anymore. We want organic food. We want biodiversity protected. We want people working on farms and ranches protected. We want climate change addressed, and we want water, like the water in Lake Erie, to be clean. Don't get me wrong here either. These are all very good things to want. But with the exception of paying a premium on organics, we don't really pay agriculture producers for any of these services. Profit margins are pretty thin to begin with on selling food, fiber, fuels, and medicines. So this is my long-winded, ranty way of saying farmers and ranchers can't do all these wonderful things on their own. They're only like 1.6% of the Canadian population right now. They need our support. And through this series, Stories of Regeneration is trying to unpack what that support from all of society could look like. In 2022, 
Researchers at the University of Toledo published a report reviewing studies that looked into harmful effects of algae blooms. The report more or less backs up what Blake said just there about neurological diseases. The evidence suggests the toxins in algae blooms are a major risk factor for ALS, and some studies showed elevated levels of some of those toxins in patients who died from Parkinson's disease when compared to patients who died from other diseases. And so I come back full circle. So the farmer can do all this heavy lifting, these things that I do. And many times I contemplate and I say, why the hell am I so worried about doing what it is that I do? When society as a whole continues to just be so damn indifferent, we're no longer ignorant. Ignorance is not the problem. It's indifference is the greater tragedy. So do you think um, just the fact you do have like thriving uh, soil health and biology, like that's kind of like trapping more of those nutrients so they don't wind up getting into the lake? Abso- like absolutely. Yeah. So, and I, and I have proof to that effect uh, too. So awesome. what we did was I, I partnered, I was sort of the catalyst in this field scale project. So in this early days of these blue-green algae problems being a reoccurrence, and Toledo, Ohio had a water, a water crisis. Hmm. And so again, as a society, we're not proactive or reactive. And they were, they were almost to the point of not having potable water. So they go into a reactive state, and immediately all the experts were vilifying the practices that I do on our farm. No-till and cover crops, saying specifically no-till, not so much cover crops, but no-till was increasing earthworm activity, thereby providing a direct conduit to these tile drains that I mentioned that exist over there in, o- in the greater Ohio area, the big flat, what they call the Great Black Swamp formerly, mm-hmm. big similar topography to ours, flat geography. And uh, that was creating the perfect pathway, the perfect outlet for phosphorus and nitrogen to leave the landscape, the agricultural landscape. And again, you know, I, I just got so damn frustrated by this and it really drove me crazy. And so I said, well, and, I, and that's why I uh, approached my conservation authority saying, we need to have data. Society wants data. I need proof as well for my own peace of mind to say that my practices, and if my practices are proved to be at fault, mm. I will change. But I am convinced that my methodology for all the reasons I already stated of, of, of why I utilize no-till was not contributing negatively to the problem. And so I partnered with the Conservation Authority and we set this project in motion where we're monitoring what comes out of tile drainage. We're looking at phosphorus, we're looking at nitrogen, we're looking at all the whole volume of water for the entire year. But where it gets really interesting is we're, we're tying my management system to a conventional management system as well. Similar soil type, almost identical soil type, they're at a, they're at a kitty corner at an intersection in a rural intersection. So we're gonna assume that both fields get the same amount of precipitation, right? And we're monitoring all of these things through the course of the, low, course of the season, we're taking water samples. And what we're seeing is, is that in the days that we've been in this experiment now for six plus years, that my methodology indeed is working as I anticipated, mm. okay? The only time, the only time that they see where I have a negative implication on the environment is in the event that I broadcast fertilizer on the surface and it happens to coincide with a rapid rain event that causes the fertilizer to flush down into the tile. Mm. 
But if you divide that by the number of years of the experiment, by comparison's sake, I'm, I'm, I am significantly lower on my contribution levels. And so that gives me those positive reassurances, right? That we're doing things positively for the environment in which we all share. Clearly, you, you got a passion for no-till. Like you said you're raising it, but kind of what I've seen from being here, like your soil health regime is so much more than that. So what else are you doing to maintain soil health and regenerate the land? Well, we're on this journey now of reintroduction of ruminant animals, right? I guess that's a real key thing. People had thrown me in the space of regeneration, regenerative agriculture, whatever, and I'm not a big guy on labels mm-hmm. or brands or whatever. It doesn't mean anything to me. But I would push back on people and say, well, I, the way I understand it, in order to be in this space, you should really have ruminant animals because of the, the value that they provide, right? The biology that comes specifically from that rumen. So, you know, now that we've brought these cattle back to the landscape in a very short period of time, and I'm talking two years of grazing, we can see some significant changes already to the soil. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then the things, again, I didn't anticipate, right? Starting to see some of these return of species. We're, we're seeing um, avian predator species come back to the farm, right? So we'll have some falcons that'll just circle circulate out there you know they're hunting and uh you know every every so often we hear we hear a resident owl Mm -hmm. that's sitting in the backyard you know and hunting as well and so that sort of this sort of holistic approach right i don't know so much as what we're doing is dramatically different other than using these intensive cover crops and just really focusing on the fact that this is not a get rich quick scheme this is a slow, long-term approach to growth, okay. right? And most farmers get disenfranchised because they expect instantaneous results. And it's not realistic. Like the, the holy grail of this whole strategy is everybody says, how much soil organic matter are you going to increase? Yeah. Right? And I'm like, oh my goodness. Like soil organic matter was accumulated over millennium. Incrementally, it just increased over time. And so we have done all of this detrimental management, right? Through tillage primarily and use of synthetic herbicides and fertilizer, which I use as well, okay? But to think that we can take our soil organic matter and increase it by two points, three points, four points in a matter of three, four years, we need to, we need to make our expectations a little more realistic. Like the one farm in particular that we, that my wife and I bought, the soil organic matter on that farm ranged between three and a half and 4%. Mm-hmm. And the majority of it was closer to three and a half than it was 4%. So today that soil organic matter after 20 years almost, right? Just a little over 20 years actually now when you think about it. Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> I didn't mean to put you down there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, time flies. Um, you know, we've increased the soil organic matter now where we're in the range of four and a half percent to as high as up to seven percent you know there's a lot more again closer to that four and a half percent and five and a half percent than it is seven percent okay but that's taken over 20 years to do this of management astute management Mm. right and in that 20 years i think we've tilled that field three times Mm. because i i installed some extra tile drainage right and so you have to level up the field and you have to get it you know, so you're not bouncing over those depressions yeah. as they settle out. 
Yeah, and, and so really, you know, when you think about that by comparison, that's what it requires. It requires a long-term commitment, patience, perseverance, a willingness to endure, right? All of those things. Maybe you've noticed that this is the third episode in a row in this series where an agriculture producer says that regenerative agriculture is the long game. The Axtons also said it took about 20 years to see results. And I believe for Ryan Boyd, it was about 15 to 20 years as well. Blake, Ryan, and the Axtons are all agriculture producers I would consider to be trailblazers in the field of regen egg. And you know what? There's just a lot of trial and error when you are a trailblazer. So what I'm wondering right now is with more and more producers blazing that trail, providing those models on how to farm or ranch regeneratively, in combination with more and more science coming in to back them up, and the principles and the practices, will 20 years to see results become 10 years or maybe even 5 years for producers who are embarking on their own regenerative journeys right now? The important thing to realize is transitioning to regenerative agriculture isn't like flicking a light switch. With agriculture, we're talking about working with life, with living systems. And change in those systems, if you don't want it to be catastrophic change, that is. Changing those systems takes time, which Blake alludes to in this next part coming up. But just before we get into that, for those grain producers listening right now... Here's Blake's rotation. And just before we get to Blake's rotation, for all the non-farmers and non-ranchers listening right now, a rotation is, well, once again, something that more or less is what it sounds like. It's the crops a farmer rotates into a field year after year. To feed a diversity of soil microbes, you gotta get a diversity of plants in the ground. So our primary crops that we grow in, in our rotation are uh, grain, corn, so soybeans, and winter wheat. Those are the primary crops to grow, and, and in conjunction with th- those, we're growing a lot of cover crops, big diverse blends of cover crops that typically are grown after winter wheat is harvested. Uh, as well, we're using crops like cereal rye as a monoculture following soybeans. So our typical crop rotation would be corn, followed by two years of soybean. So after the first soybean harvest, we'll plant that cereal rye crop. We'll try and no-till our soybeans into that cereal rye, plant green essentially into cereal rye on the second year of soybeans. And then after, or after the first year of soybeans, and then the second year of soybeans, once they're harvested, we'll plant winter wheat. Mm-hmm. And then the winter wheat gets harvested, we'll plant that big diverse cover crop. And then the following year, we'll let that overwinter and we'll plant our corn green into that big living cover crop. And so recently, in, in conjunction with the cover crops, I've reintroduced some grazing animals, a very small uh, sort of hobby as it pertains to our cattle enterprise. Compared to a lot of people, we're just playing around with some custom grazing. I think we had like 60 cows and their calves and a couple bulls, and I sort of amalgamated two herds. The one herd I was custom grazing, one group of cattle, and the other group belonged to another uh, farmer friend of mine that I've started this business relationship with and we were mobbing them up together to have a more of an intensified impact and rotationally grazing them and and then um like I got the impression yesterday like in that your field compared to your neighbor like your neighbor's field like 
everything was uniform, practically you know, same color, same height, all that. But yours was a bit of variation. There was like milkweed in there, which I, I love seeing that. So I get the impression when it comes to your synthetic inputs, you're probably using like the bare minimum, and I'm assuming that's intentional. Yeah, so we've gone down the path of utilizing non-GMO crops. So I don't have the, I call it the luxury to spray herbicides over the top without worry of killing them, right? The reason I've done that is I'm able to retain my own seed for my own use. I'm not, in, I'm not impacted by patent restrictions. So, so many farmers today have gone down the path of buying new seed on an annual basis because the new seed is first and foremost, we have been indoctrinated to think that new seed is going to give us the maximum yield. New seed is not introduced as a non-GMO because the patents that came to market were centered around Roundup Ready technology first and foremost. So farmers became very, 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 uh, I would say, transfixed on the aesthetic appeal of having a clean field. And everybody aspires to have this meticulous, uh, benign field of just a sea of soybeans. And in nature, we don't find we don't find that anywhere. So again, what what is that contributing to our bio biodiversity? And and so, you know, yeah, now we've got some milkweeds around the margins. Uh, you'll see out there in our field sometimes we struggle. One of the weeds is we've moved away from a bacterial dominant soil, using a lot of herbicides and fungicides and fertilizer that we don't we only use at a minimum, we start to see a shift in weed pressure. Like Canada thistle is a real struggle. Okay. But more importantly, a lot of these herbicides are designed that the bacteria, actually when you spray the herbicide, then the bacteria invades the plant and it's the bacteria that takes out the weeds. And, and so we, we have in conjunction to the herbicide, but so now that we've gone away from this bacterial dominant soil to a fungal dominant soil, and you see that with evidence of all kinds of different fruiting bodies, mushrooms on the soil surface at times, the herbicides aren't working the way they're designed to work. So that's why you start to see a little bit of weed escape pressure and, and things like this. But, and it's all things that I've come to understand as I've gone down this path, right, of doing more and more reading and research. And, mm. and I'm not a chemist, right? I'm, I'm a farmer. That's my forte. Right, fair, fair. Uh, I have like, this might be, too soon to say so it's okay to say no to this question but uh, i've noticed since you started using cover crops that like the amount of fertilizer required has become less and less or oh absolutely yeah no for yeah. sure okay. for sure so years ago in, in corn production world that we're in uh, the understanding was in order to grow a bushel of corn which is 56 pounds in a bushel you needed one physical pound of nitrogen so a pound of n was a bushel of corn okay. and on clay even though because the nitrogen is held so tightly to the clay clay colloids, that ratio was pretty accurate. As we've gone down this path of increasing our biologically available nitrogen, either vis-a-vis -vis legumes that we use a lot in our cover crop blend, or just providing other soil organisms to complement the corn that grows there, we're gradually reducing our N. Um, but much like an addict, a drug addict, when you wean that addict off, you can't obviously take them from being a full-fledged addict down to nothing because there's a catastrophic result, okay? You have to gradually 
wean them. And so much like our soils, they've become addicted to these inputs and we gradually have to start reducing them. So over time, we're reducing those inputs. And last, last year was a really good uh, year to really see this come to fruition. Uh, nitrogen prices had gone through the roof and I just, we weren't, it wasn't raining. And so I just made the decision, look, we're not spending any more money on nitrogen fertilizer, done. So I only put out like, I think it was 60% of what I wanted to do. Okay. My yield wasn't as high as some of the neighbors, but at the end of the day, I still made money because I had that cost savings in nitrogen that I didn't spend. And so I've come to the expectation or the realization that if I'm going to be a low input, a low input farmer, that I shouldn't expect to have the same yields as those high input farmers. But at the same time, I don't need to have those high yields to still make relatively the same amount of money. And I definitely don't have the same amount of potential risk hanging in the balance. It's actually, uh, you know, Chris Nichols, the soil scientist? Yeah, very well. One of my favorite quotes from her is... Uh, I had to cut this part out because I completely butchered that favorite quote from Dr. Chris Nichols, who's an extremely well-known soil microbiologist living out here in Alberta. She's also in that documentary, Kiss the Ground, if you ever check it out. So what Chris said, and this was way back at a field day we co-hosted with a University of Alberta research team at a place called Breton Plots, and this is way back in 2019. What she said was, or what really caught my attention was, the bank doesn't care how much grain you have or how many pounds you put on your animals. However, what the bank does care about is how much money you put into it and how much you take out. Translation, if the costs associated with production, like fertilizer costs, if those eat up most or all of your profits, having the biggest yields isn't really going to count for much, aside from bragging rights. You need to be profitable at the end of the day. You can listen to that snippet from Chris and the rest of her presentation in episode 20, The Brown Revolution, which I think to this day is still one of our most popular podcast episodes. Blake also raises a really good point in that part about gradually weaning the soil off of inputs, inputs like nitrogen fertilizer. It can't happen overnight. In order to maximize soil function, you need to first build soil function back up again so it can take over those roles, either directly or indirectly, that those inputs once played. And Blake mentions some of the things he's doing to build that functionality back up, like putting in cover crops. But this all takes time and a bunch of trial and error. In light of the fact the transition to regenerative agriculture can't happen overnight, we need to ask ourselves as a society, what are we going to do to support farmers and ranchers during this transition as they wean our soils off of those inputs that they've depended on for decades? Blake shares a couple of ideas right here. And by the way, regenerative agriculture reducing agriculture producers' reliance or dependence on inputs has always been one of the main value propositions behind Regen Ag. The other one's around nutrient density, something we'll talk a bit more about towards the end of the series. I think it's going to require uh, a significant appetite, uh, specifically from those entities that utilize the crops we grow, that are, that are willing to compensate fairly 
the producers that are growing crops in a way in which they deem to be desirable. So today, the crops I grow, with the exception of, of soybeans, go into making tofu and misu. I get a modest little premium, but I'm not being compensated. I'm getting premium because they're non-GMO, not because they're regeneratively grown. My corn, I get a slight little premium over the market because it's non-GMO and it goes to make whiskey but not because it's regeneratively grown. We start to see big players, and I'm just gonna throw out some names out there like PepsiCo, Unilever, General Mills, you know, these people that are in that food processing space, if they wanna make an impact, all they have to do is start saying, okay, we demand these credentials. There's, it's a not, it has to be a non-negotiable. Mm. And the players, if they're compensated, the players being the farmers, if they're compensated fairly, mm. they'll they'll be interested. There'll be an appetite there because the margins on, on farm level are always gonna remain relatively tight in perpetuity. Okay. Just, you know, the minute that corn price goes up, price of fertilizer comes right up behind it. So the spread that the farmer makes is is at this range, right? The farmer is not getting rich. Price of corn goes up, look at the price of machinery. Like, my, my God, like, it does the, 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 the planter does the same thing, but yet it has doubled in cost, you know? And, and so these, these things, I think, that's what needs to happen is that the person that wants the, the crop or the meat or whatever grown in a regenerative fashion needs to be prepared to fairly compensate the farmer and they could have a transformative impact in a very short period of time. But, the, but today, the market is designed in that the control of these commodities is held tightly in the hands of a few players, right? And so this methodology is very disruptive to their model because there's this perception, much like organic, there's a perception that this methodology of regenerative farming is going to somehow reduce yield so that means there's less physical bushels or crop tons of grain per hectare going across to scale. And so how those companies are compensated, the great big grain merchants is who I'm referring to specifically without naming them, how they're compensated is throughput weight essentially that goes through their facility. And so if they think that there's gonna be less volume that goes through their facility, that makes them nervous. And then it becomes uh, segregation, logistical constraints. How do, you, how do you maintain integrity, keeping it pure, all of these other things? Who assumes the liability if it's not met the standards? How do you find an alternative market if you've paid your consumer or your producer X premium over the market? Those are, those are the logistical constraints that need to be taken into full consideration. So there's definitely a financial and economic piece that we need to figure out if we're going to accelerate adoption rates of regenerative agriculture. There are also a couple of social pieces that we need to address as well. And to be honest, I've been doing engagement within the agriculture sector since 2018 when Rural Roots got started. Quite often I find those social pieces are some of the biggest barriers to accelerating adoption rates. The first social barrier is that there's a lot of pressure in an agriculture community to farm or ranch in a certain way. We often joke around on this podcast how nobody wants to be the subject of conversation 
at the local coffee shop. Okay, I I do know some producers who actually do want to be the subject of conversation at the local coffee shop, but I have to say they're in the minority. Generally, most people don't want to feel like everybody thinks that they're the village idiot in a small, tight-knit community. So, funny story, you know, um, I've I've taken crop that we would look at as being very weedy, and we've harvested it, and I've taken it across the scale compared to a field that, is by all intents and purposes, was relatively clean, mm. weed-free. And when we laid it on the on the line, and we looked at the numbers at the end of it after, and because everything goes across the scale on our farm, the yields were very much comparable. Where the interesting thing again comes down to the fact is on the clean field, I had an additional cost of a herbicide pass. Right. Right. And so again, you know, you get caught up in this whole initiative, this this whole pride thing, and of how it looks, and is it is it appealing to the masses? And it, it's not like, and trust me too, I like to harvest a clean field. I like to go in there. It's so much simpler. You know, you're you can make good progress. You're not being delayed at harvest. All these things, especially if you want to follow it with a subsequent crop like winter wheat. You don't want to wait for the weed stuff to dry down in order to plant, order the, to plant wheat. the wheat. So fast forward. You know, I got a field that's a bit of a mess. And uh, my uncle, who I mentioned in the conversation that farms in the next county over, he's he's getting to be older now. He's about 11 years older than my dad. So I guess he'll be uh, 87 this December. So this is a couple of years ago when he comes in the yard and, and straight away he doesn't say good morning. He says, Blake, are you organic? And I said, no, I'm, I'm not organic. And, and he goes, oh, he says, your fields, they're, they're, they're a hell of a mess. And, and I love this man. Like, I love him dearly, okay? And uh, so I could see my dad over the corner of my eyes, over my shoulder, and he's sticking his chest out. He's welling up with pride that here's somebody that Blake admires and respects. It's just going to give him both barrels. And he's like, just give it to him, you know? So my uncle goes on to say, man, though, that, you know, th- that's, just, that's just awful. And I said, well, I said, you know, I said, Uncle Hank, I said, um, they, don't, they don't pay us for aesthetics. And there's this dramatic pause, and he looks at my dad. And my dad, I can see his shoulders slumping, and, and he says, they don't pay us. He goes, what's, what's he mean by that? He goes, they don't pay us for how it looks. And my uncle says, it looks like a hell of a mess. <laughs> and so at that, I just smiled back politely, and I said, I don't disagree with you. But I said, in the past, I said, I've taken the crop to yield. And at the end of the day, what I found is that it doesn't yield that much less than our cleanest field. Well, that's not my experience. You know, those aren't going to be worth a damn. And uh, so anyways, it's just one of those things. And, and, I, I, and, that, and that's the public perception. So here's somebody that I have great admiration for, not afraid to articulate what his thoughts are. Uh-huh. And I'm sure there's many others that would like to have the opportunity to take a shot at me too. And I'm not afraid to say, you know, we don't, in this business of agriculture that we're in growing these commodity crops, nobody has ever paid any of us one dime for how they look. And I don't foresee that in the immediate future uh, ever being any different. I did ask Blake if he found it hard to be one of the few producers in his community farming in what some may describe to be an unconventional way. It, it's sometimes it's lonely, right? And um, when I started down this path, I, didn't, I really didn't start down this path to be any sort of uh, guy of notoriety right or infamy or anything like that i just did it because 
it made sense. I saw it being implemented in, in other geographies. People were being successful at doing it. I right, I right away recognized the opportunity to save additional costs. And in our business, it comes down to economics. Okay, And, and everybody says, well, where's, where's the economics? What's the economics? So right away, I recognized that in our business of agriculture, we don't control the price of the seed. We don't control the price of machinery. We don't control the price of fuel, chemicals, fertilizer. And when we go to sell the crop, we basically accept a price that's on offer. So it's just, it's such a flawed system. It's so foreign to so many people. We bear 100% of the risk and we pay the freight both ways. Okay. So I work tirelessly in our business to look for ways in which I can control my costs. Because at the end of the day, that's the only thing I can control in this business is keeping a lid on expenditures to try and remain financially viable. So if that means I can reduce the dependency on nitrogen fertilizer by growing a legu leguminous cover crop, right, to fix nitrogen biologically, that makes sense to me. If I can reduce my dependency on tillage by utilizing technology like no-till, that's less depreciation, that's less fuel, that's less time. That allows me to go on the boat if I had a boat. Mm. You know, it allows me to go golfing. Okay, that's a better analogy. I like to go golfing with some, some buddies at times, right? Or go to dinner with my wife. So that's how I look at the business. Again, I guess it helps that I'm not, I'm not transfixed on how things look. And I'm not worried about appealing to my neighbors. Mm. So having had the opportunity to go further afield has really been to my advantage because again, it has given me a, a network of people like you mentioned, Chris Nichols, mm -hmm. or I mentioned David Brandt in the conversation and I can name off numerous people across the U S across Canada, some of whom, whom you've got to meet that I can call up or reach out to today on social media or email or whatever in a moment's notice and get a response, right? So my network is no longer, the people that traditionally farmers would see as their neighbors, mm. right? Or perhaps somebody that's selling them something, right? Or the people at church. My network now is around the world. All I've done is just taken what I've observed in other geographies and implemented it here at home on our farm in southwestern Ontario, Canada. Another challenging social piece that needs addressing or perhaps just accepting is that regenerative agriculture is a set of principles that are meant to be applied in ways that make sense for the context you're farming or ranching in. Regenerative agriculture is not about following a recipe. And we collectively, at times, have been accused of making it look easy. And it's the furthest thing from being easy right? Um, the, the big context that we have to take into consideration is if we refer to ourselves and our management system with our own soil type and our own microclimate compared to somebody in Western Canada with more of an arid climate, what's going to happen, the result of, uh, and how they manage it is going to be dramatically different. So that's, you got to sort of keep it in context. A guy in Western Canada might be farming on a far greater scale than I am, okay? Again, I'm in an area where we're smaller by comparison, but the land values are a lot higher than in Western Canada. 
how we look at terminating cover crops. And I, I look at my friend, for instance, in North Carolina, Russell Hedrick. He likes to plant into these big, robust cover crops. On an annual basis, he receives significantly more rainfall than I do. I, have, I like to plant into some big cover crops, which at times in the spring have gotten so big that they have delayed my growth and progress of my corn crop that I've planted into. So we need to start paying more attention here because I don't get the same amount of rain, even though I'm surrounded by the Great Lakes. I need to pay closer attention to what is the weatherman saying for predicted heat, precipitation. Maybe I need to terminate those cover crops a little earlier than I like. I prefer to plant them green, but maybe I need to terminate them earlier. These are things that we need to look at. We can't just automatically think that we're going to follow a recipe card and many of us in agriculture get transfixed on the recipe you know we plant corn in this window we fertilize so many weeks after emergence with nitrogen fertilizer we spray a herbicide the minute we see any weeds present because we have the luxury of doing that going over the top because the crops are resistant to those for those herbicides you know with regenerative agriculture i think we got to become more more aware of our environment, be more in tune, be be willing to observe, be willing to tolerate some nuances of imperfection specifically. And we can't be transfixed on the current model of looking over the fence, so to speak, and admiring the neighbor's crop, right? We have to worry about reminding ourselves, well, why are we doing it? And in this business, don't kid yourself, in this business of agriculture, it is ripe ripe with peer pressure and so this this overwhelming pressure whether and i and i'm sure at times it comes back to my dad right and and his pushback of why i'm willing to endure these perceived risks because his peers older generation crowd you know they drive by they know where our fields are whatever and like my uncle you know wow that's a dirty field so does my dad hear this peer pressure from his circle of friends like what's blake doing oh i see you put up a fence Oh, I see he's grazing cattle. Mm-hmm. Oh, I see he's got some weedy beans. So that context question is a reality, mm-hmm. right? You got to say, okay, are you willing to endure the ridicule? Are you willing to endure things might not be perfect as you change your methodology, as you learn a new system? Do you have the support mechanism? It's all about keeping it in perspective. Mm-hmm. And the context becomes unique to every individual because what I'm willing to endure is going to be dramatically different than the next guy that goes down this path. Okay, final words of the episode go to Blake Vince of Merlin, Ontario. Thank you for listening to part three of Stories of Regeneration. If this series was a book, and who knows, maybe one day it will be. I'd say this brings us to the end of book one. Up next is going to be book two. And in book two, you'll hear from some agriculture producers who, for them, Farming regeneratively has always been the norm, even if they weren't calling it regenerative agriculture from the start. New Brunswick, Quebec, Nova Scotia, and British Columbia, you're up next. Right. I always say when I have people like you come to our farm or any other person, you know, I don't want to leave the conversation or leave the visit with people thinking I have have all the answers because I sure as hell don't, right? I'm still trying to figure it out. I'm still trying to learn. I'm willing to learn. I want to learn. And... I guess that's what I always 
takeaway from my mother-in-law's sage advice that she passed on to me from a client that she had years ago. Okay. And this older lady was taking computer lessons. Okay. And she was admiring this lady, willing to take these computer lessons at the age of 80-something. And her adage, her line to my mother-in-law was, Mary, if you stop feeding the brain, it dies. So I would encourage people to continue to feed the brain. Don't get stagnant in doing the same old, same old. I always like to encourage my audiences when I speak to try and think back and we come back full circle to when we're children to re-engage that youthful curiosity. Be willing to learn. Be willing to get outside your comfort zone. Be willing to do things that benefit not only yourself financially, but those people that live in closest proximity to you and your community in which you live, breathe, work, and play. Do you find, and this might sound, sound a little ass backwards, but uh, like since you started going down this path, like the more you learn, you discover the less you know? Oh, totally. Absolutely. No, and that and that's, that's the beauty in it, right? Yeah. I just learn one thing, and then all of a sudden I'm like, well, that's not 100% how I understood it to be. And so you feel like you take one step forward, you make two steps back at times. But again, it's that, it's that pursuit. And I, I guess I'm fortunate that I'm not worried about being a perfectionist because this methodology would at times kill the perfectionist. <laughs> totally. <laughs> That's why it's been a recurring theme. It was like almost everybody I've interviewed. They're like, I don't know, man, the more I learn about this stuff, the less I feel like I know about this stuff. Right. right. That's a really humble opinion because in my mind, yeah, like folks like yourself, you're like, you are the experts, but experts are human too, right? Absolutely, yeah. and I and I fail, and, I'm, and I, I, I have a hard time calling myself an expert, right? I, uh, I, I'm, I'm fortunate that I've been able to surround myself with some pretty cool people doing some pretty amazing things, and and I'm, I'm that's what I'm most humbled by. I have more than enough time uh, to help people, and as a people person, you know that's what sort of gets my endorphins going, right? And it's my synapses firing and all of these great things, all of these great things. And, but at the end of the day, really, my primary goal is to be in business, to remain in business, to provide an example for my kids and uh, make my wife proud. Rural Roots to Climate Solutions is an Alberta-based organization empowering agriculture producers and the communities they live in with climate solutions. Rural Roots runs workshops, farm field days, webinars, and participant-driven projects like the Siksikatsitipi Agriculture Project and the Regenerative Agriculture Lab. We produce a farmer's blog, and of course, we do this podcast. For more information about us and what we do, go to the website, which is www.rr2cs.ca. The rest of the amazing and talented Rural Roots to Climate Solutions team is Shiana Younger, Kristen Mountain, Shelley Seed, Lance Tailfeathers, Susan Solway, and Aiden Grind. The podcast is funded by a variety of Alberta-based funders and funders based in other parts of Canada. The Stories of Regeneration Project, which is much more than a podcast series. So the Stories of Regeneration Project is primarily funded by Agriculture and Agrifoods Canada. The project is led by Regeneration Canada, a fantastic not-for-profit organization that advocates for soil health to mitigate climate change and guarantee a healthy food system. It's an organization Rural Roots is proud to partner with. 
For additional information, videos, blog posts, and digital materials about the agriculture producers featured in this series, visit regenerationcanada.com. The interview with Blake was recorded on McKee Purchase Treaty lands, and my parts of this episode were recorded on Treaty 7 lands and in the Métis Nation of Alberta Region 3. Happy farming wherever in the world you are, and remember, what's good for the climate is good for the farming.